0: Welcome into this week's episode of Tuesday's R for Talking. This week on our podcast, we're going to be talking about, well, what everyone's talking about. The need for voices to be heard. The need for justice and the need to find a path forward during this extraordinarily trying time. So I hope you'll join me and stick with us here as we have a raw and candid conversation with Mosaic Elder Galen Washington and our TGA Director, Nina Jenkins, about the times that we find ourselves in and what a path forward might look like. So thanks for joining us, we're gonna get into it, here we go. Tuesdays are for talking. And the tone is not quite what it has been the last few weeks, uh, because we're facing some things in our country on a scale of which we haven't seen in over 50 years. I mean, we have seen problems. We have had riots. We've had protests. We've had people wanting their voices to be heard. But but not in my lifetime. Have we seen this scale, this magnitude of people just wanting to be heard? heard. And so as we move into this space today, on Tuesdays, if we're talking, we'd be remiss if we didn't continue talking about the same things that are driving our national conversation. And so today, as I mentioned in the intro, we have one of our Mosaic elders, Galen Washington, and our TGA director, Nina Jenkins, on the call with us today. And, and, And with the two of them, we simply want to talk about where we are, and what our path forward may be. So, thank you all for for joining us today. And Nina, I just want to start with you with with a, a short question, but not a simple question, which is, how are you doing right now?
1: Well, thank you for asking. I would say right now I am probably in the most peaceful place I've been the past couple of weeks. Not because things are doing well, but just because I've been able to have time with the Lord and really dive into my feelings that I hate to talk about, and and it just have allowed him to meet me there. I've been very vulnerable with just all the weight of what's happening, what I've been witnessing, the protests I've seen and been to. And so he's meeting me there. And so today he's just granted me peace. So I'm in a much better place today.
0: Well, I'm definitely glad to hear that. And we'll get into more of that in just a moment. Galen, thank
2: you so much for being here as well, man. How how are you today? Brother, thank you for asking. And I'm doing... Much better today. Um, like like Nina, I've had a chance to do a lot of deep introspection and to seek the face uh, of, of my father and to really find my peace. And so the initial, I guess, jarring effect of kind of processing the the most recent—I don't even know what to call it. I don't even want to call it a tragedy because it's—it's. I don't feel like that's appropriate. But I've been able to anchor myself, if you will, and really find my rest and my, my peace in Christ. So today I'm doing much better uh, than, I, than I had been.
0: I'm, I'm glad to hear that. It has been tough, and I, I literally can only imagine what it must be like to wade through what the last week has been like for my for my black friends. And I, I do think that's an important distinction to to make. And and Nina can probably help us understand why that's an important distinction in just a little bit. But, you know, when 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 the whole world sort of feels like it turns upside down, right now for, for a lot of people for a lot of different reasons there's like this urge inside of us to want to just get on the other side of it and many people want to take the shortcut they want to figure out how do we get around this obstacle how do we get over this obstacle? can we just turn back and move away from this obstacle but I, I think in moments like this we we have really an opportunity to not go around, what's in front of us, but to actually go through it. Martin Luther King Jr. talks about the difference between negative peace and positive peace. And he says that many people are devoted more to order than to justice. And those people prefer negative peace, which is the absence of tension instead of a positive peace, which is the presence of actual justice. And so it feels to me like we're, we're at one of these crossroads where the only way to, to have an honest path forward I mean, we could lie to ourselves, right? We could just convince ourselves of some alternate reality that's not real, but, but the honest path forward is really through the tension. It's not relieving ourselves of the tension. It's trying to identify the source of the tension and how do we, we move through it. And so that that's really the conversation that I would like to have today, uh, with, with both of you. And of course we've talked a little bit about this, so it's not just my conversation that I want to have. I know this is a conversation both of you want to have as well, but, but I'd like to go back Nina, uh, To you and and hear a little bit more about when you're looking at the tension of of the moment that we're in right now, when you see that and you start to factor in a lifetime of experiences, how does it come into play with going, okay, I'm going to put another foot forward, but but what does that look like and what are you bringing into that next step?
1: Yeah. So for me, it's probably a different experience than some folks because this isn't just a world that I'm watching on the news. And, you know, I'm originally from Kentucky. Um, I went to school in an area in Western Kentucky that was known for its racism, very overt racism. I witnessed things like demonstration lynchings on our campus, people stringing up mannequins and lighting up things. And I have just saw an array of things in my years and I'm only in my 30s. So for me, racism has never tried to hide itself. And so I think for me right now, this is compounded trauma because I also work in this space of anti-racism. So I'm constantly encountering conversations with my clients who are seemingly well-intentioned good people. Who have very racist ideologies, very sexist ideologies, very ableist kind of ideologies that intersect all kinds of ways. And so I see people excusing themselves out of contributing to this system often. I see people trying to make excuses, a lot of what if, just in case, well, how about, you know, the quote unquote, which I hate to hear people say, is play devil's advocate. And I have to correct them about aligning your your words have power. So aligning yourselves in that way, I want you to check your intentions when you want to enter a conversation playing the devil's advocate, right? Like, what is that really about? Um, And so for me, this has just been a time of seeing people who have gotten very defensive about what they don't understand and less interested in being empathetic and stepping to someone else's shoes and stepping back and feeling and considering what it could be like to be a black or an indigenous or a person of color in this country right now. And not understanding, it's not even just firsthand trauma, but just that visceral secondary trauma of being a part of communities that continue to see a repeat, a pattern of being disregarded, being silenced, being ignored and marginalized in more than one way. And and I think right now we are witnessing people frustrated with trying to be heard, and so I've been on the fence about how I want to respond to the protest and incited violence with riots and things of that nature. But I'm also reminded with MLK like to really look at what is that anger trying to express? What are they've been trying to say that no one's listening to? Um, and this country has a long history of using riots and violence. And so I just, I've just i been having to check myself even about the conditional response or the conditional concern I have about people. Do I care more about their spirit, their soul, and who they are, their humanity, than I care about property or about my tax dollars and how it's being used? You know, there's just a lot of questions around idols and beliefs and ungodly things that I think all of us are having to navigate right now. And so for myself, I'm really having to be intentional about ways race and racism are impacting my ability to be an ambassador of Christ. Is it hindering me or is it helping me to really understand the needs of people? Um, Am I running to it or running from it? And I think for me doing this as a work day to day vocationally, I'm just dealing with a lot of compounded, complex issues at once, which can be very weighty. And thankfully I know Jesus. (laughs) That's all I could say is thankfully I know Jesus.
0: Thank you for sharing all that. And just just to back up briefly for me, for what it's worth, just being a black woman in America, that's all the resume you need for me to listen and care uh, what you have to say. But would you just tell us a little bit, you've referenced the work that you do. So so could you just tell us a little bit more about what that is that you do on a day-to-day basis?
1: Yes. So I am a equity and inclusion consultant. Um, And so I help organizations, I help leaders strategize how they can make their work environments, their teams, their organizations more inclusively diverse. And so from my perspective, we look at equity. We look at how do you create space where people can thrive? How do you make sure there are opportunities to even get to a place of talking about equality, right? So different groups have not had access to the same communities who've had different experiences and monitoring the way we weigh those differences, the way we create opportunities or don't create opportunities based on our differences and how we, they don't realize it, but how we also bring like the love of God into that. How do we really care for people well when they spend so much time at work? And so that's what I help them do wisely.
0: That's really important work that you do. You were talking about what we're seeing is just a a sort of collective response of people wanting to be heard. And as someone who is in the majority culture in this country, someone who is 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 white-skinned. As I as I look around, it's like all I find myself wanting to do is to just turn around and tell people, listen, like, mm-hmm. do you hear this? Do you hear this? Please, for the love of God and all things holy, just listen to these people and what they have to say. Now, mm-hmm. Galen, you, you've been on this planet a little longer than both of us. Um, I think I just called you old in a very respectful way. But uh, but in all seriousness, how long have you been waiting for the voice of black people in America to be heard by people that look like me?
2: Oh, uh, that's a great question. Um, I've been waiting all my life and I've also had the privilege of experiencing what it's like for people who have been blessed to be born Caucasian or white to, to actually cross over into that threshold, cross that lane, if you will, cross that line and to engage and actually have a desire to want to understand what is it like to to live in this country with this beautiful paint job and this beautiful culture, this beautiful ethnicity that me and Nina have been born into. So I I would say, you know, Nathan, I've been waiting my whole life. And as a person who values empathy, personally, I value empathy. I I believe that it's one of the greatest tools and devices God has ever given mankind. Empathy is is costly because it does require you to want to truly understand to the fullest extent possible, what is it like to live and walk the earth the way that you do, right? That's costly because you're gonna have to feel what that person feels. You're gonna have to understand what hurts them. That costs you something. And so I, I just, I value that so much My heart breaks because sometimes I know many people don't value that. And I'm not saying that I'm perfect or I've arrived in that way. All I'm saying is when I take a step back and I look at what's happening today, most of the time I don't hear the voice or the sound of someone or a group of people who are saying, I really want to just understand no matter how much it might cost me, even if it hurts me terribly to understand what it's like. And so me taking it kind of one foot after the next as I was listening to Nina respond, um, that's one of the things that I try to do. Even now, I'm actually more emboldened to have those kinds of conversations with my brothers and, and sisters at Mosaic Church about this very topic. This is, this is one of the ways that I take one, one step you know, after the other.
0: When we talk about wanting people to hear what you have to say, I don't really know how to boil down a lifetime of experience into a few bullet points. It's probably like asking you to take your car to the moon. But what are some of the things that you want people to know? That you want people to hear. And rather than talking to the people, just talk to me. We're having a real conversation. What do you what do you need me to know about your life and what it is like? to wear the beautiful black skin that you do? And either of you, whoever wants to go first, but what do you need me to know about your experience?
1: I think for me, the older I get, (laughs) I would say that I would like for you and my friends who are white to understand that I don't see my blackness as a burden. I don't feel that being black is something I should be ashamed of. I don't feel that I should have to be told or taught in our schools that my Blackness is something that I should be ashamed of. I think I really want my friends who are white to understand that it's white supremacy that I'm tired of, that is exhausting. It asks so much of all of us, but it asks a lot of Black, Indigenous, and people of color. It asks us to stuff our trauma It asks us to step aside and allow ourselves to be dehumanized, to even dehumanize ourselves. It asks so much. And I don't think people really understand that we've been fighting for a long time to be seen as human in this country, particularly, um, just based on policy. We've been fighting to be seen as human, to be treated as human to be reserved and respected as human. And until we can at least get to there, you cannot talk to me about how I should feel that I'm being equally treated. I just don't think people understand that we're not talking about the same things. There's Mm -hmm. so much behind it that has not been acknowledged. And I think specifically within the Big C Church, that as a Black woman who is Christian, who loves Jesus, that... It's been very difficult to get through a process of talking about reconciliation with folks when we're wanting to skip steps. We're wanting people to forgive offenses, which is something God asks us to do individually. That's for our goodness. That's for us, our relationship, our peace. But forgiveness is not the, is not reconciliation. So when you see people who've been harmed and done wrong and poorly and they've forgiven, that is not where this stops. That doesn't excuse you or any of us from doing the rest of the work, right? There's confession, there's repentance, there's there's a lot of steps to restoring a relationship that I feel my friends who are white, particularly within the church, are missing in this large context that, yes, I forgive you, but that doesn't take away the pain and it doesn't take away the hurt and it doesn't excuse passively consenting by not walking in this journey with me to not come alongside and advocate and fight for justice. So I think that's the main thing I really wish people would understand is that we're tired of fighting this by ourselves, what feels like by ourselves, and that it would mean so much more to see people who want to be allies and advocates be more of accomplices, to stand up, even if it meant to take some blows that we've been taking for generations because we're doing this arm in arm. And I think that is a piece that I wish people would understand.
0: Can I go back and ask a question? So I don't want to say I was raised to think because there wasn't really any intentionality that I can recall about the way I was raised as relates to white supremacy, but I was raised thinking that white supremacy was, you know, Aryan nation, KKK, you know, Hitler's Germany. I had buckets for where I put white supremacy. So when I first started coming in contact with with my black friends and people of color talking about the prevalence of white supremacy, I was confused because I'm like, I don't see that a whole lot. So even in my framework of having some level of knowing someone in that space, it still seemed like... Those, those are the crazy people. And I still had that bucket of white supremacy that was those people, those bad people. Would you mind just helping me understand a little bit more about the ways in which white supremacy shows up from, quote unquote, good people in your life, maybe even people like
2: me? Yeah. yeah. Let me just say quickly. I mean, I think that it's a multifaceted, multi-layered thing and in its simplest form, it looks like a presupposition that a person with my skin hue is more dangerous, less dependable, needs to be watched constantly, requires additional safeguards in order to do business with. It doesn't have to be this visceral attack. And frequently, that's not what it feels like. And you've heard the term microaggressions and, and, and things of that nature. But that's one of the most painful things and part of the experience is that it, it can feel like a trillion little tiny cuts. To use the analogy of walking down the street and always having to look over your shoulder to wonder is it safe back there to walk down the street and see a non-black family walking the opposite direction and to see them visibly uncomfortable forces me sometimes and even at almost 50 years old forces me to ask myself should i behave differently now Is there something else that I can do to let that family know I would never do any harm to them? Is there anything that can be done in this moment? Is it my responsibility to help them feel safe around me? And so white supremacy in my mind starts with the presupposition that there is something wrong with us, people who are African-American or of African descent, that there's something wrong. Fundamentally, there's something wrong with you and therefore you must be treated a certain kind of way with boundaries and limiters and the assumption that we shouldn't be as, as trusted as, as people who don't look like us.
1: Mm-hmm. And I would add to that, at its root, I feel that it's referring to this like dominant, unquestioned standard of behavior or beliefs that are going to protect those who are white. And it may not necessarily be that people think of themselves as superior, but the belief that white is superior is built into the structure. So it's built into the cultural of what is normal, what is abnormal, what is excellent and what's subpar. And because not everyone is white, they do not have access to the rules and all of these cultural norms, right? So they don't even know sometimes that these are the expectations or the rules, but there's a judgment there and it's backed by institutions. It's backed in systems and it continues to benefit people who are perceived to be white or identify as white, whether they ask for it or not. Um, So it's just this level of, like I said, like the language supremacy of over other groups, that white is the ideal. And so I think that would be how I would describe in most layman's non-scholastic way, white supremacy.
0: I've asked this question of a lot of people because I really want to hear how it plays out for people that don't look like me. But one of the ways it was described to me one time is that white people in America, they, they are the default. Like we're the, we're the insiders, everyone else is outsiders. So we hear a lot of us and them language, us and they language. And that, that was really enlightening to me because once I heard that, I started to recognize that. And I started to recognize in my own thinking how I would view the world that way. You know, there's there's this American standard that is related to whiteness, though seldom named that. Like white people don't call that out often these days, because of course that would be racist. So we just do it without talking about it. And I began to notice that sort of default mentality. And one of the one of the things that I think about a lot as I try to I try to imagine what it what it would be like to not be white in this country is to try to imagine if every time someone talked about me or what I represent, I was referred to as other than, as they, as as some peripheral thing. And not to make this a political conversation, although I, I don't think you can separate it. But one of the examples that comes to mind is, you know, watching Donald Trump in one of his campaigns before he became president saying, look at my African-American over here. Um, Like, that's just a statement. And it's a statement that's actually not all that unusual from white America. I've got a black friend, right? Like I have friends and then I have a black friend. And therefore, I'm not racist because I like black people. I'm just, I'm trying to figure out as, as a white person that loves my black friends, what can I actively do to work against that idea of white default society that we live in and to bring about at least a space of equity in the space that I control, which may be very, very small.
2: But but what can I do? Galen, help me out with this. Yeah, I I just want to highlight, just as a quick example, a, a situation that happened when the elders went on a retreat to Fredericksburg some years ago, and Simone and I had never been. And we were, look, we were uncomfortable because there wasn't a lot of pepper in the salt shaker. In fact, we were probably the only African-Americans that we could see for for quite some time while we were there. It's a beautiful place. Don't get me wrong. It's awesome. Right. But we were uncomfortable. And there was a moment where Simone and I had made reservations at a restaurant. And then all the elders and their wives came to meet at the restaurant. And Carrie Stevens was standing next to me and Simone. And the host addressed Carrie and Morgan, but she wouldn't look at me and Simone. Carrie picked up on what was happening. She could see that we were being marginalized in a very small way. And instead of speaking to the woman about what table we were going to have, you know what Carrie did? She looked at the lady and said, they set up the reservations. Why don't you speak with them? And in that moment, it was this beautiful little shift that happened. It wasn't a big deal. Now, what Carrie was saying on the inside, if you had seen her face, was, oh, heck no. This is not going to go down this way. But she kept her composure and she just said, no, not today. You will not overlook my brothers and sisters who were standing right by my side, who actually set up the reservations because they are my peers. They are my equal. And so I share that story because it's just one tiny example of what it looks like when we are truly walking together in that way. It's like first nature, it's not even second nature, to see and sense and be able to intervene when those infractions and those hurts start to surface.
0: The flip side of that same experience, I was at a uh, conference, and I won't say at what church, but a, a conference at a church that is a multi ethnic church and, and seeks to be a reconciling church. And so, you know, our, our church, for sure, we've made mistakes. Individuals in our church make mistakes. But anyway, I was at this large conference with my friend Shadrick Bell, pastor here in town as well, and, for, you know, formerly with us at Mosaic, another Every Nation pastor. And Sh- Shad and I were at this conference, and we're out in this sort of parking lot holding area because they hadn't opened the doors yet. So we're just hanging out, and they've got security guards walking around. And multiple times, the security guard comes up to Shad, who's a large black man, comes up to Shad and wants to look through his bags. I'm standing right next to him. Not once did I get asked to look through my bags, you know, to look through my, my pouch. And so the third time this happened, I just inserted myself and said, you should check my bag as well to, to try to make that point. But I feel like that kind of thing just happens all the time. And I I don't even know what to do about it except to say, check my bag also. What more can we be doing in addition to check my bag also?
1: Those are good examples. I think when it comes to dismantling racism, there are different roles, right? And so I think for those who have more access, the privilege within that particular system, social system of race, is really understanding how to retool your privilege. right? Because I think there's this phrase that's going around about sharing your privilege, but it's really not about sharing it. It's about retooling it, right? So if you have access to a weapon and you don't know what to do with it, when you do use it, you're gonna use it improperly. And so when it comes to privilege, if you have access to information readily, then in, in access to people, you're in that space, you can ask questions that I can't ask or safely ask in those spaces. And when we're talking about research papers, I'm thinking just like on college campuses. I have seen for myself when professors respond differently to being challenged by white students than they do from students of color in their classrooms. If you see something, you know it's the phrase, see something, say something, but you have access. And when we're talking about privileged systems, When you're moving through the world, as Peggy McIntosh talks about, it just refills every day, right? So if you recognize I'm in a position in this system where I have privilege, I have access to power, I have power and authority, I have the responsibility to use it wisely. So It's not about like, hey, abandoning your friends, bring them into a space with you and abandon them. That's that's not that's not helpful. Okay. <laughs> what helps is the sponsorship, right? You're speaking highly of them and getting them in those spaces and backing them or going before them to to shield the blunt of things that are gonna come their way because you know that room better than I do. And you also know what my experiences have been in rooms like that. And so this it's a matter of being conscious of the norms that you're swimming in all the time, but also looking at how to retool the position that you have in a way that elevates people and glorifies God that shows people that they're made in God's image and they matter, their voices matter, their skills, their gifts matter. And then the other side of that is the way for people to unlearn or challenge and dismantle racism is really look at where are you getting your information? really challenging the things you've been taught about this country, the stories you've been taught, how you've been taught those stories. I remember being in a class and a student stood up. I think she identified, if I'm correct, as First Nation. And and she challenged us on my culture should not have to be an elective. We were here first. Right. And so when we look at, like, why do we have Latin American studies, African American studies, Asian American studies, when these people groups have been in this nation for a very long time. Right. And so really, it's a lot of different ways that we can dismantle and unlearn things, whether we are white or not white, but particularly if you are white and what information you take in and how you use that information, it matters.
2: I love what Nina just said. And, you know, as an elder at Mosaic Church Austin, one of the things that we want everyone to know, and this is really important, we. We don't desire, and I don't desire, to see uh, a diminishing of the entitlements um, and the power that certain people groups might happen to have been blessed to, to be born into or have access to. That is not what we are about as a people. And, and I think Nina said it so well, and I just, I just want to try to add a little punctuation on it. God has graced us each with certain degrees of access to resources, power, authority, entitlements. And the role ought to be that we see that, we recognize that, and we utilize that for the benefit of others to the fullest extent possible without crossing certain boundaries and taking on unnecessary weight and responsibility. But, you know, I used to get triggered personally. I would have an emotional trigger when I was around predominantly Caucasian rooms And as a black executive, I was frequently, I'd find myself in that situation. And the quintessential Ivy League Caucasian man used to be one of my personal biggest challenges. And when I started to work with men like that, and some of those men began to open up the door for me, the professional door, if you will, and work with me and I began to trust them and they began to trust me, that actually accelerated my professional career because I was able to clear some hurdles. But the access to that power and those career opportunities, frequently the gatekeeper was a white man. And I had to learn how to work with them. And they had to be willing to open up the door and and really let me in and share some of what they had been given or what they had earned. And so What we don't want anyone to hear on this podcast is that this is about something being diminished about what God has given you. But perhaps you could look at it as God has blessed me and graced me with this level of ability and access and power and authority for the betterment of the society and the people around me. How can I serve my brothers and sisters around me differently or better? Nina, I was just watching you
0: while Galen was talking, and I'd love to know what you were thinking as you were listening to that.
1: I was thinking, it's so common, (laughs) I was thinking recently my spouse and I were having a conversation about how sad we were about the rules we've had to pass on about how to navigate whiteness and white supremacy. Because the truth of the matter is our families have told us these stories. They have warned us about things about dealing with cops, lawyers, people in the judicial system for a long time not because they want to take away innocence but they it was for survival and so i have also had to like i said regardless of what your social positioning might be you know for a, one part of my life i was in a very low income back came from a very low income background and then it moved it shifted and it changed and i have had to also unlearn how I judge people for not knowing the rules that I've learned by being in certain rooms, right? Like like Galen said, having access to certain people. And so I've had to unlearn the way I've seen people as not, I've been taught to see people like me or who are brown as well, who don't know how to advocate for themselves in the workplace or who have not had access to formal education, recognizing in those space, I was also being conditioned to navigate whiteness, right? And so it was, it was, it's a weird tense place. um, Because when you have access to people who have power, there's also these expectations of you to protect that as well. And unknowingly, you can pass on that type of pressure to other people to enter the room as well. And it's just an unhealthy thing. And so, you know, my, like I said, my spouse and I have just talked about how he had a conversation with his students about not buying fancy, nice cars because he wouldn't want them to get pulled over by the police. And I just think about the long-term effects of, in a way, telling people to not dream so big, to not like nice things that they may very well have the income for. They may very well have a passion for nice cars or nice bags or whatever, but we are teaching them like we've been taught in some way to not want abundance or great things because it comes with being followed in stores it comes with being pulled over all the time it comes with people doubting you know that that's your credit card and it just comes with a lot of things that aren't fair and so as he was telling that story it just made me think of the feeling that when you're a person of color who's often having to navigate predominantly white spaces is also this being careful of believing there's only space for one of us and i think that is also part of what I've been going through the past couple weeks, past couple years of unlearning my own internalized racism of internalized inferiority and also internalized thinking that whiteness was better, that being dark was a bad thing. Those are just phases of learning and coming into myself of understanding who God says I am. And he's just been healing those things with time. But as Galen said that, it just brought up a lot of memories of moments of dissonance or contention of like, I'm happy I made it to this place, but I feel uncomfortable being the only person in this place. And how can I bring people into this place without feeling the blunt of some consequences? And I don't know if people who are not Black, Indigenous, or people of color understand that that's happening with us when we're just your only Black friend or <laughs> you know, the one of the few in those spaces.
0: Yeah, I've had black friends my entire life, but it's only been in the last eight years or so that I have really began to understand even just a fraction of what lies beneath the iceberg of what I could see as it relates to the black experience. And that that makes me really sad because it, it lets me know that I spent over 30 years of my life maybe being a friendly person to my black friends, but not being a safe enough person to talk about these things with. And I'm sure it was because it was obvious that I couldn't handle those conversations. I wasn't the right person to have those conversations with. Even if their friendship with me was genuine, there was still, it was segmented. It was put into this box of this kind of thing and we couldn't just be holistic in our relationship. And I really appreciate Galen actually being the first black man in my life to be brave enough to tell me his truth and sit there and see what I would do with it. And that was the turning point for me. But the more that I learn, which I have so much more to learn than I have already, but the little bit that I have learned, obviously, in the context of the fact that we live in a world that has things that are both seen and unseen, there's a spiritual realm that we live in as well as a natural realm. There is some spiritual wisdom that plays into this conversation as well. You know, we're talking about a lot of natural experiences and natural wisdom and natural this, natural that, but there's a supernatural aspect of this that, as a Christian, I can't look at it and think that it's just a human. Human invention, either because I know too much about that as well. You know, again, not as much as I wish I did, but I know enough to know that there's an enemy who has worked and isn't just working now. Like there's not some demonic plan that just got released last week when yet another black man who was unarmed was killed by a white police officer. That wasn't the demonic plan that got unleashed. That that is contained within the fabric and framework of a long-term demonic plan that has been with us in this country since its inception. You know, we've we talked about being founded as a Christian nation on Christian principles. And there's some truth to that. But if we think that's all it was, we mislead ourselves and deceive ourselves. Galen, would you just talk to us about what you see? Because I know when you and I talk about these things, there's always the natural and then there's the transcendent. And I'm yeah. always impressed and, and not impressed like, in a, oh, neat, you're smart. But like in my spirit, I'm impressed. Like You get what's going on in the places that we can't see. And I would love for you just to talk about how you navigate that as a, as a Christian, as a leader in the church, also as a black man, and what the fight against the enemy actually looks like for you in these spaces. Yeah,
2: that's great. You know, Nathan, when I, when I take a step back and um, I get really quiet and I look at what's happening in our, in our nation I am instantly hit with the notion that we are still fighting the same fight that we've been fighting for for generations. And, and I'm trying to be very specific as it relates to the United States of, of America, this great nation that I love. But I personally, you know, I, I sense and feel the ripple effects of what I, what I call one of our great nations, great original sins, which of course is as the colonies were forming and and the slave trade kicked into high gear, you know, that required that, that resulted in a ripple effect that I believe we are still working through. I believe that we are still dealing with. And I, and I think that hearing that over and over and over again, I think we've, we've gotten to the point as, as a society that our ears have grown numb to that truth. And as our ears have grown numb, we have lost our discernment about what it is we're truly fundamentally dealing with. So I feel like the enemy, and in in this context, we're talking about Satan. I believe he's been working behind the scenes to keep our nation focused on uh, surface level, serious stuff, but not getting down to the core root of what's propelling so much of the dissension. and the the division that we see in our nation today. So I I just wanted to take a moment to share something. I was praying for our nation earlier this week, and I was struck with a, a notion that, again, we are fighting about something that the roots of it are truly evil. And I think it would be a big mistake if, especially as a church, we didn't pause and acknowledge The roots of what we're dealing with are truly satanic and truly dark. And transparently, as I started to pray about this, I started to get hit with a number of thoughts and words that I put to paper. And before I read it, I just want to set a little bit of context. The intent is not to, as you listen to this, it's not to hurt anyone, but it's to give a voice to the voice of the enemy as the voice of the enemy spoke into the heart of man, and in this context, man being slave owners, and what the slave owner said in turn to the slave. I want you to understand that this is something today that reverberates in many people of color, especially African-Americans or people of African descent. We actually still hear these words. I hear these words. My mom heard these words. My grandfather heard these words. So I just want to take a moment to read it and I'll try to be as brief as I can. And it starts with, I own you. Now this letter again is written, this is the slave master's words to his slave. And this is what I believe we're still fighting over. I own you, boy, you belong to me. You are my property. Your lady is my property. I have done and I will do what I please to do with her and to her. As I make you watch, I will ruin the womb of your little coon daughter, taking her innocence as I see fit. Say one word in protest, make one gesture to defend yourself or your family, and I will obliterate you, monkey. Your little beastly mongrel children belong to me. I will be a god to your son. He will never look at you with honor and pride. Your son will learn to hate you and the very ground you walk on, and therefore hate himself, as he watches you surrender all to me. Your offspring's great pleasure shall be to do my bidding, my little whipping boy. You know well the suffering I can rain down on you, your children, your woman, if you resist me. You will wish for lynchings as I shred your flesh to ribbons, torn apart by horses, have you tarred, feathered, and burned alive. Kuhn, I can reach out and break you at any time I want. I will break your very psyche and all your faculties so that your zest and zeal for life are replaced with numbness. Your brokenness will be so great that you will even lose the ability to despair. You will be beyond hopeless. You will be my little mindless drone as that fire and hatred in your eyes for me are glossed over with eternal brokenness. I am going to both literally and physically castrate you. I will devour your African manhood, your self-respect, your dignity, your pride. You will forever hang your head low. You will never dare lock eyes with your master or his perfect white woman. Boy, I will break your very soul. Everything I do to you and your family will be designed to remind you that you are an ape, an animal worth less than a pig, I will break you as any wild thing must be broken. I snatched you from your homeland, stripped you from your heathenistic little jungle home and culture, erased your name and scorched your flesh with my mark, my brand, my name. My little whipping boy, you and the generations that follow must be taught to stay in your place. I've caught that look in your eye, oh yes, every once in a while. I see just a glimmer of hope in your eyes like you aspire to be me, to have what I have, to live like I live. Oh, but slave, if only you knew, I have laid so many traps for your kind, traps designed to seal your fate forever. Just when you think you have made peace with your pathetic existence, I will complete your destruction by selling your children, selling your woman, and selling you. It will be as if you each were shipped to the four corners of the world, You will never see them again. And in your nightmares, you'll remember my promise. I can break you at any time. I own you. And finally, when you think you have hit rock bottom, I will extract every ounce of value out of your black worthless hide by turning you into my very own breeding machine. I will ship you from plantation to plantation. Your sole job will be to spill your seed where I command. You will manufacture as many monkey slaves as I see fit. Your very idea of family will forever be shattered. And like any animal, your prime relational motive will be to mate and move, mate and move, mate and move. Your very ideals about community, collaboration, and interdependence will be replaced with rivalry and destructive competition. I will sit back and enjoy the delicious way your own kind will turn on each other, betray one another, kill one another, as you pine away for scraps and the unattainable carrot I have placed before you. My black buck, if over time and by some chance, society tries to include your kind as legitimate members of our society, I will see to it that the laws of the land, the educational system, the financial systems, and governmental systems keep you enslaved. Everything you try to do will cost you more. Your loans will cost more. You will pay more in taxes. We will freely seize your land, take your crops, squash your rights to participate in political systems so that you remain chained to the will of your master. You must remember, boy, I own you. Oh, my little whipping boy, one more thing. I have saved the best for last. One day, you will take my religion for your own. And when you do, boy, I can't wait. You see, my little monkey, I will introduce you to the very God who has sanctioned the natural order of things. The final devastating blow, the big reveal, the final nail in your coffin will come when you finally understand that my God, the same God that made you, has mandated that I be your Lord, your ruler, your earthly master. So, my little whipping boy, now you see, now you understand. To you and all your generations I say, keep your head down, do as you're told, surrender all to me, and I just might allow you to live.
0: that warranted a moment of silence, sit with the words, reminded me, Galen, um, very much of uh, screw tape letters, C.S. Lewis, seeing the backside of the sinister plans of the enemy. And if I'm hearing correctly, what this intends to communicate is the demonic plan that was brought about through people who worshiped at the altar of greed and power.
2: That's right. And I would just say that our hope, I won't speak for Nina. Nina can say if this is what her hope is as an African-American woman, but as an, as an African-American man, my hope is that when my non African-American brothers, when my white brothers hear this, the desire is not for them to feel shame, but to understand the strategy behind the game. And you let it in, as we talked about earlier, when we talk about empathy, when you let it in, it's costly. But if you don't let this in, you won't understand what we're really fighting against. So those of us who are walking this out and working for our own healing, that's my job to work for my own healing. That's Nina's job to work for her own healing. We are descendants of a people, and we are walking out our own healing. And conversely, those who are descendants of the masters and the owners, the slave owners, who perpetrated those crimes, there is also a a role that they can play in helping to walk out that healing. And it's not about salvation. It's about empathy and walking it out together. And, And I hope to God that that's what's heard. It's not a demand. It really is an appeal. I appreciate you saying that because I've almost lost touch in a good
0: way with what it feels like to feel like words like this are an attack against me because that is the disposition I came from for so long was that when black people in America would talk about what white people have done to them, whether it's in the past or the present, I would take that on Personally, like they're saying, I did. Th- I didn't do anything to them. I didn't. Da-da-da-da. I wasn't at this. I wasn't at that. I'm not at this. I'm not at that. And and that built-in defense mechanism it immediately stops any possibility of progress, relationally, societally, in any kind of way. And if there's any silver lining for me, though, this is not about me. As I listened to you read those words as heavy as they were, I didn't feel attacked by them. But I feel the great heaviness of, of the sinister plan that you have so perfectly captured and how it has played out among so many people that I love and that I care for. And I guess I'm going to be here on a a lifelong, relentless journey to try to undo sin in many ways. I try to undo it in my own life, try to undo its effects on my children, try to undo its effects on my wife, try to undo its effects on my friends, and I want to try to undo it and its effects on, on us, on each other, between our races, if you will, between our our skin color and the way that all of this has transpired. It is a holy and righteous work to seek to try to undo it but Nina, I'd want to hear your your thoughts about a path forward for you for for people that that you may sort of speak representationally of in a small way, for yourself as an individual.
1: One, I would say Galen, thanks for reading that and sharing that. I have two emotions one, it's sad it's me because I can see how well this has worked itself out, which is heartbreaking. You know, I am a systems person, and so I'm always telling people there are no broken systems. Systems always produce what they're designed to produce, and so you know we use that language a lot when we talk about this, of saying like we're helpless in fixing it some way. And what I am understanding, even from a spiritual sense, is that we are children of God. Like We have his power, we have the power of Christ in us, and we have authority to create something new. And biblical unity is not a fallacy. It's not a fantasy. It's something that we can actively pursue. And in order to have that, we have to be very intentional about reconciliation, not just with the Father, but with each other. You know, there's so many times he references like, love me and... Your neighbor like it's never just this focus on me. There's so many times that he points us to one another. And I think I would be remiss if I was to say that I've done all this work of this healing work without other people. Right. Like God has pointed things out to me, but the unlearning the deconstruction of whiteness and deconstruction of white supremacy and colonization for my own mind and my spirit like i say heart when i say heart just kind of like cardia the name of my company it's like the center of it all like my my soul my my thinking my actions like where it all flows from and that transformation is a process and it's become a fruitful process because of the people god has placed in my life even at various stage of being healthy and unhealthy when it comes to this thing like race. And so I think what I have seen as a path forward is really leaning into the Lord and asking Him to show me what it means to forgive and how to forgive quickly, but then also what it means to pursue reconciliation. Because it doesn't feel fair, but there are times when all of us as children of God It is our ministry of reconciliation. So it is our responsibility to initiate hard conversations. It is our responsibility to pursue people and with the desire of them to better understand God. We understand him better through our relationships. We come to know the beauty of ourselves through those relationships. I think I grew from a very insecure, what people consider pretty dark skinned black girl, Because there were so many people got brought in my life who were Black and not Black who would affirm that in me, whether it was my intellect or my features, and not from a way that wasn't authentic, but genuinely saw the image of God in me and elevated that more than anything, no matter what other people said. And so I think a path forward for me and people like me is to really lean in and trust God and His Word. And I know sometimes these conversations feel like it's just Black and white. But I recognize that this is an experience, people who are on that spectrum of color and, and racial groups and ethnicities. But there's also work for us to do on that spectrum, right? That that curse has infected various degrees of relationships between groups, you know, especially those who are at the intersection, who are black and Latino, black and Asian or white and Asian. There's those are so mixed up now and culturally intermingled and related, but we're still holding on to that stuff from that curse. And so I think for all of us, there's opportunity to be stretched in a way that's transformative that the world needs to see. And that is where my hope is. My hope is that my God does not lie. And these promises that he gave me, no matter what man has said, no matter how man dresses up forgiveness and reconciliation, if it's not what God says is reconciliation, I don't want it. And so I think if we are committed to that and we walk with each other in that, we own our stuff, we confess, we repent, we keep forgiving, we own, repent, it's a process, I think we're all going to be better healed and transformed from it.
0: I love that. I almost don't even want to say anything because that was so good. And maybe if you're listening to this, you just should rewind and listen to that. Again, because it was so good, but I, I do feel compelled just to sort of point out what seems obvious to me as we start to wrap up this conversation, which is that this this situation that we find ourselves in, this societal framework. Uh, is not going to be solved in one conversation it's not going to be solved by the right meme or the right zinger or the right gotcha line or the right see you know whatever all, all the things that we do to sort of try to try to poke and provoke or, or to, to enlighten or whatever but just this conversation like we we could stay here for three more hours and still only scratch the surface on all of the things that lie within this spaghetti web of complexity and so so i think for nathan the the path forward for me is realizing that it's going to be a lifelong pursuit and that that I, I can't grow complacent in thinking that just because we've reached certain milestones that we have reached a destination. And I know that that is a, that is a trap for my way of thinking to think, okay, I've, I've done these things. I've said these things. I've aligned these ways and I, I live this way. So I've sort of done what I need to do. There, there's more to learn. There is more to understand. I think both of you would acknowledge that, that there's more for you to learn, even about your own experience, to. To, to better understand it, to better frame it. There's more for me to learn from talking to more people. And there's more for us collectively to continue to do. So I'd like to close this with a, a very familiar verse from the Bible. And, and I think that it speaks so poignantly to, to, to this moment, but also to the life that we're in, because is in about a moment it's about movement towards something else and as people who are made in God's image I think that not only has to do with what we look like or free will or things like that but the fact that he has has made us to bear his image to steward and be his regent here on the earth and to to sort of take what is in front of us in the natural and and govern on his behalf if you will to to, 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 to steward the the planet, to steward relationships, to steward animal life, all of these things, right? To to, to steward it all in his image as he would. And so as we look to Micah chapter 6, verse 8, it says this, Has he told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I love that that word walk is in there. I'm looking at about 20 translations right now on my screen of that same verse, and there's a few variances in all of them. Almost every one of them talks about walking. And what that says to me is that it's not a place that I come to where I have done justice and I have shown mercy. And I have humbled myself before God, but it's an ongoing thing for us to continue to do justice, to continue to love and show mercy and continue to over and over and over and over and over and over again, humble ourselves before God and before one another. Because the, the humility that I may try to, to move myself into in my own closet before the Lord, it's useful for me and the Lord, but it's not so useful for me and you. I have to walk humbly also with you and with everyone else who is listening. and And, and that is a challenge to do. When you're trying to do justice, because sometimes doing justice to certain people in certain situations can feel like you're, oh, you think you know what you're doing. You think that you've got it all figured out because you're wanting to fix this problem that you see. And, and I love the beauty and the wisdom of God that that while he calls us to do justice, he also calls us to love mercy, and he calls us to continue to, to walk humbly. And it's, like a, it's, a, it's a cycle that if we can get ourselves into the rhythms and the waves of God and and how he moves, and how he perceives these things, we won't arrive. But we will make progress. We will move forward. And I think that that is for me the exclamation point. I'm not trying to reach a destination, but I am trying to get to the next milestone and to the one after that and to the one after that. And when Jesus comes back in all of his glory, he will put to death sin and death and racism and poverty and oppression and disease and all of the things that our enemy has used against us. They will come to an end when Jesus says the time is up. But for now, in this place, we have to continue to not give up in doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with our God. That's my final word, but I don't want the last word. I'd love to hear just one final word from each of you before we conclude today's podcast.
2: I just want to say I love everyone that's listening to this podcast with my whole heart, and I'm so grateful for the work that God has given us. I I see this as a tremendous opportunity, and I'm all in. So Thank you guys so much for for listening.
1: I second that. It has been a pleasure serving at this church. It is a pleasure and a blessing and an honor to see God using all things for my good. And I just speak that over everyone on on this podcast, that even though it looks dark and confusing and cloudy right now, as believers, we know that to be true. And if we just stand firm and anchor ourselves on that, to not be distracted and swayed, we will dwell in his peace with him and with each other. And that's his desire for us. And so thank you for having us.
0: Thank you both for being here. God bless you. you. Thanks for joining in for this week's episode of Tuesdays are for Talking. For more information on how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, head over to our website. That's mosaicchurchaustin.com. And, of course, be sure and follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'd love to connect with you and hopefully see you in person soon as our plans are to resume church on Sunday, July the 5th. We'll keep you posted about that. Thanks again for being here. Have a great day.